Welcome to SKUcast, the podcast for entrepreneurs in the promotional products industry. SKUcast shines a light on our industry's best work, features maverick personalities, and discusses what's really involved in running a modern promotional products business. SKUcast is the official podcast of Common SKU. Before we get into today's topic with today's guest, Mark Graham is here to join me to talk about Common Skew University on January 15th from 845 to 1150 at the Mandalay Bay Convention Center in Ballroom L on the second level. We will have Common Skew University. Mark, what is Common Skew University? Why did you create it? What's its purpose? So we created Common Skew University to give people a place where they could learn more about the application in a hands-on way at Expo. We knew that people were hungry for information about Common SKU, the application. So we have created this environment where we go and talk about all the features that distributors use to run their business. And we also give them a roadmap in terms of what's coming down the pipe. And then we also have a session for suppliers because, of course, suppliers use Common SKU as well to engage with distributors and grow their business with the distributors on the platform as well. So we thought by creating this setting where distributors and suppliers could come together, peek under the hood inside the application and learn more about it was a really good use of people's time in the morning. Let me break that down a little bit. The event kicks off at 845 from 9 o'clock to 950. 10 ways suppliers grow sales on CommonSkew, a presentation by you and Samantha Cates. At 10 o'clock to 10.50, Catherine Graham presents how CRM helps distributors ignite sales and retain customers. From 11 o'clock to 11.50, Catherine Graham and Aaron Kucherway will present hacks, new features, and the road ahead. So it's a quick, easy morning, and CommonSkew University is free to attend. You can register at commonskew.com university. I don't want to just stand up here and talk to you about selling your company. If it's not in the cards for you to sell your company, that's okay. There's still so many reasons to focus on building value. Basically, you build a more of a recession-proof company once you build a strong company with a strong infrastructure. And the most important thing, I think, is building value is building great habits. Jamie Watson is a partner at Certified Marketing Consultants and has been involved in the industry for over 11 years. She has her CPA and MAS designation and is one of the most regarded experts on business valuation in the promotional products industry. As we were planning our first SKU camp, the topic of building business value was imperative and we could think of no one better than Jamie to help us navigate the numbers and learn how to build a robust business. From optimum commission practices, EBITDA, healthy margins, and more, Jamie tackles a wide variety of topics intended to help you create maximum value. Over the next several weeks, we will be releasing all of our audio from our inaugural SKU camp event. Since many of you are deep into business planning for the upcoming year, we hope this series of presentations helps you and your team as you plan and grow. You can download the PDF from Jamie's presentation at community.commonskew.com. Just look for the episode entitled Creating Maximum Financial Value in Your Business. And now, from SKU Camp, Jamie Watson. Okay, yes. Yeah, so, um, you know, I woke up this morning and uh, we started kind of on a sentimental note. And then I thought, oh, this presentation is about money. So I woke up this morning and I thought... How am I going to, after everything this happened, how am I going to get up there and just talk about money? And then I came in, and we had Denise's thoughtful, wonderful presentation. And I thought, oh, man. <laughs> she said it's OK to talk, you know, think about money. But now I have to really, you know, that was so thoughtful. I have to go up there 
and, and talk about it. Like, and it's, it's not a great thing. But what then happened was, Bobby, wherever he went, uh, the angel asked her, how does this translate in terms of um, profitability? Or I, I don't know exactly what he said. And she said, we've grown 25% for the past three years. And our margins are just below 40%. And she, was, she knew it. She was on it. And that's, that's, what I'm, that's what I want to drive home today is I don't think everybody should be all about making as much money as possible. But you can't possibly make good decisions in your business if you're not measuring the right things, if you're not looking at the right things. So that's kind of what we're going to talk about today are some of those things. I've been in the industry for 11 years. And um, our, our firm deals mainly in mergers and acquisitions. We do some financial consulting which means that I see a lot of financial statements, a lot of financial statements, uh, distributor and supplier. And so we collect that data every time we get a new valuation. We collect that data and we compile it into kind of a database of information about this industry. So I'm going to share that with you guys today. We don't share it very often. Um, and if there's anything that I don't cover that you had a question about, just feel free to reach out. Before I wrote the presentation we kind of discussed, or kind of in the middle of writing the presentation, uh, we kind of discussed some of the questions. There was like a, there's a pre-conference survey, and so these are kind of some of the questions that came out of it. What drives profitability and cash flow? How much is my company worth? How do I make it worth more? Um, what are some key performance indicators for the industry? And those are kind of sprinkled throughout the presentation. Um, it's not just a list, here they are. Um, I tried to incorporate them where it seemed most relevant and also so it wouldn't be super boring for you guys. What does a healthy set of financial statements look like? How should salespeople be compensated? Which I'm really glad that um, Catherine, who is uh, one of the smartest women in this industry, in my opinion, kind of resonated some of the pieces that I'm gonna to touch on in terms of um, salesperson compensation. I'm not gonna tell you how to do it. Um, and listen, I don't, I don't even own a distributorship. I know a lot about them, but I don't own one. So um, also during this presentation, it, it'd be nice if we can maybe get some dialogue and discussion on, well, this is what's worked for me, and that's what's worked for me, and, you know, and that sort of thing. So I want to encourage you um, to raise your hand. We don't have to wait till the end for questions. If there's something up here that you um, have a question about, feel free to raise your hand. I'm happy to answer that question right there. I don't want you to forget it. And I don't want to forget what you're talking about either. So, um, and so, yeah, other questions, if you have them, please just feel free to, to let me know. Why are numbers so important? So it's a relationship business. I've talked to a bunch of people last night, and they hate numbers. And I get it. I get it that numbers aren't everybody's thing. I'm kind of a nerd. <laughs> I always have been. I know I don't look like an accountant or whatever. I've heard that a million times, so I can repeat it. Um, but <laughs> it's okay for me to say it. <laughs> um, no, I, I get it. Not everybody loves numbers, but they're important. And even the relationships that you have with your customers can be measured based on numbers. How long have they been a customer? How big of orders do you do? What's the average order size? You know, what's the volume that you do with them? All of it is wrapped into numbers, and they're really, really important. Um, and nearly everything in your nearly everything in your company can be measured. Nearly. Not everything, but nearly everything. Some of what Kath Catherine said was so right on because she was saying, um, you're going to hire this person, and you need to do that analysis on whether that 
higher is going to make sense to you. And it seems like it'd be really difficult to capture that, but it isn't. I mean, she kind of laid out how they do it. So if you're going to make a decision, um, if, if a significant action or decision cannot be measured, then don't do it. Um, you don't want to go into a significant, I mean, if it's insignificant, then sure, but a significant decision, you don't want to go into that blind. So why be concerned with building value? There's a lot of reasons. You want to sell your company. I mean, that's what we do. So obviously that's you know, going to be a lot of it. But I don't want to just stand up here and talk to you about selling your company um, because not all of you are going to sell your company. Some of you have children that you want to pass it on to. Some of you want to work in it until you die. Um, and that's pretty common. If it's not in the cards for you to sell your company, that's okay. There's, there's still so many reasons to focus on building value. Basically, you build a more of a recession-proof company once you build a strong company um, with a strong infrastructure. And the most important thing, I think, is building value is building great habits. Um, you don't necessarily, my husband and I flip houses, and you don't necessarily want to sell your house right away, but you still take care of it. You still make investments in it. You still care for it, and you should, you should care for your company in the same way. So you should still build those great, those great habits in your company, and, and in, in doing so, you're also building value. So not what numbers create value, and I'm, I'm gonna fake you out a little bit right here, and I'm gonna talk about what numbers don't create value, because I get phone calls all the time, all the time, and the first thing they say is, well, I've been in the industry for 30 years. And I say, great, what, um, what are your annual sales? 50,000, <laughs> you know, and I get, I mean, I get that kind of thing out. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Um, being, in the, being a resilient company in the industry for a really long time is great, but it doesn't make your company valuable. In and of itself does not make your company valuable. Um, how many employees you have? Actually, it's better if you can do less or do more with less. So just because you have 50 employees doesn't mean you're worth X. Um, it's better, actually, if you have less employees. So that's, that's not a key indicator. Um, how many high-profile customers you have? And you know, sometimes the, pro the problem with the high-profile customers, I've noticed, is everybody wants to work with them. So what happens? Anybody? They, they squeeze you on the margins. They're not, and it, it goes back to another thing Catherine said, sometimes you have to fire those customers that are gonna be lower margins or they're just not gonna be worth working with. So high profile customers don't create value. How many people you know in the industry doesn't necessarily create value? It helps you in your business, um, but it doesn't in and of itself create value. Um, how much you spend on equipment? We get this a lot too. Well, I'm gonna use an asset formula to sell my company, so I spent X number of dollars on equipment, so that means my company should be worth X. Equipment is only as valuable as the revenue stream it's generating. So it doesn't create value just because you spent money on it. It has to actually create revenue and therefore profits in order for it to be valuable. Same with real estate. I know a lot of people own their own real estate, and I know there are a lot of reasons for doing so. So no problem there. Own real estate if that's what works for you but it doesn't necessarily make your company more valuable because a lot of times somebody is going to want to move your company into their facility and so it might have value on its own for you to sell or you might be able to sublet it or something like that, but owning real estate in a certain, it just doesn't create value on its own. 
how the company performed three years ago. So I joined the industry in 2006, and shortly thereafter, we had this big, gigantic blow up, and all kinds of bad stuff happened. And um, I saw that buyers kind of shifted that thinking from, hey, the last five years of sales, that matters. And now, it really only matters what you did last year in terms of a formula for buying. Now, growth trends matter. I'm not saying that growth trends do not matter. But when it comes to, when it comes to buyers buying companies, they're really looking at last year and then usually a, a portion of this year uh, or a trailing 12-month statement is what we call it. So they're looking at, not only are they just looking at last year, but now they're looking at the most recent 12 months, no matter when those end. So how your company performed three years ago doesn't necessarily create value. Um, and then unrealized potential. We get, um, well, this is an untapped market, and uh, this is why our company is really valuable, because um, there's this whole sector out there that, that we, haven't, we haven't gotten into yet. Well, why haven't you gotten into it? Oh, we don't have the resources or whatever. Well, if somebody has to use their resources in order to tap that market, they are not going to want to pay you value for that. Does that make sense? Okay. So, um, and also, banks don't lend for transactions. They don't lend on Blue Sky. That's, that's over. That happened. It's done. So, and it should be. So we're talking about numbers. What numbers do create value? Um, the key to creating value and this is just, there's literally just one, future sustainable earnings. So um, just basically creating a company that is going to have, by sustainable, I mean quality earnings. Um, and we're going to kind of talk about how, how you do that. So qualities that contribute to and create sustainable earnings. So I'm kind of talking out of both sides, but I'm not really. Historic earnings, growth trends, margins, and stability. Um, yes, all of that matters in the big picture. So historic earnings, meaning, like I said, last year and then maybe a trailing 12, maybe an interim statement. Um, but five years ago, no. Sometimes people say, well, I've done $2 million over the past five years. That is completely irrelevant. Um, you want to look at it, one year's financial data. Um, operational excellence and reputation. Um, and it's not up there, but kind of what I want to wrap into this is niche markets. Um, so if you, if you have a niche market where maybe you are the person that everybody goes to in real estate in your local market, that's great. Because maybe you lose a salesperson that was selling to that real estate market, but you're still known as the real estate company or whatever, you know, the promotional product. Like, you know what I'm saying, the niche market for real estate. So that means they're going to continue to come because you understand their business. So, Operational excellence, reputation, and niche markets all wrapped into that. Uh, customer base. I get a lot of pushback on this one. I mean, how many people have a, a customer that is more than 10% of their sales? A lot of people. It's okay. It's okay. I'm not saying that you should go fire that customer tomorrow. Quite the contrary. All I'm saying is um, your company will be more marketable and more... Um, valuable if you have a more diverse customer base because it's lower risk. So sell, you know, selling your company, you're always trying to mitigate risk when you're a buyer. And so when you have less of a customer concentration, that's one of the, that's one of the aspects that they look at. That's one of the biggest aspects they look at. Uh, customer continuity. If you have multi-year contracts and, and 
you have customers, even if it's not a multi-year contract, but you have, you know, customer one is constantly your customer one, and customer two is constantly your customer two. Um, that's what buyers like to see. They like to see some continuity and not just customers that are coming and going. They like to see some customer loyalty there. Salespeople continuity, this is the biggest one on the distributor side. And um, we'll just kind of dive into the whole independent contractor versus salesperson because it's a big, it's a big topic, both in the M&A world and in the distributor world in general. Um, somebody over here had the question, we, we compensate 50-50 what do you guys do? And, and Catherine hit the nail on the head, especially when it comes to mergers and acquisitions, because she said it isn't just about how you compensate them, although I'll talk a little bit more about that later. It's basically how, how much control you have over their customer base. So um, people want to see that they're able to continue with your salespeople. So if you have employment contracts with them, if you have non-compete agreements or non-solicitation agreements, that's best. Um, if you have independent contractors, you don't necessarily have all that. You usually don't have all that. So in terms of selling your business, I would say an employee model is going to be the, the best in terms of continuity. Now, um, some people are looking for independent contractor models, but those people aren't usually willing to um, pay a lot in terms of cash of closing. They usually string everything out over years. So I would say employee model is going to be the best model if you're looking to you know, build value in your company. And it, I mean, it creates more of a, an environment, a brand, a family brand as well, I think. And I think everybody's been talking about that all, all week. Um, unfortunately, yeah, there's some concentration risk with the salespeople. Sometimes it's just the owner. Owner's the key salesperson doing 80%, and then there's maybe one or two people doing the rest of it. Um, that's not a problem, as long as the owner wants to then continue on and sell. If they don't, then there needs to be some sort of transition structure in place. So you want to, I mean, you want to diversify. I actually have a client that this is one of his key. He wants to buy a company because he wants to diversify um, his sales base and start kind of dividing all, some of that up amongst his salespeople. So um, you want to diversify your sales base as much as possible, although I know in this industry a lot of people do have those key salespeople. Um, and then investment in the business. The... Uh, IT side of things. We always say you want to be on the leading edge, not the bleeding edge of technology. You know, you, you want good technology, you want stuff that you, you can rely on. Good referrals from other people is always great. You guys are all in a great platform, so there shouldn't be any issue there. But we did have a client that we marketed, and they were doing, um, they were doing really well in terms of us marketing them, and people were really interested. And then um, what happened was, Somebody went in for a visit, and it was like a scene out of that um, that movie, um, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, where it's basically just telephones sitting on a, he knows what I'm talking about, just just telephones sitting on the table, and there was really nothing else. There, you know, like really, really old tower desktops, and the whole deal kind of fell apart. And we had to go back to them and say, you need to make some investments in your technology. So, um, investments in technology are important. So what drives up earnings? Let's, let's talk about that for a second. I don't know who wrote good gross margins. It was probably me. But it should say great gross margins or strong gross margins, um, proper sales compensation, which we're going to discuss, and then control of overhead. Those are really the three factors. Obviously, sales drive up earnings, but they don't in and of themselves drive up earnings. And 
we've already talked about sales, so we're not going to talk about sales. So here's a key performance indicator that we have from our database. And um, gross margin, industry average. Actually, it, it keeps shifting. It keeps going down a little bit. When I started, it was 35%. And it could just be the population of who we have in there. But um, it's 32.2% now. And so what I've done is I've said, here's the industry average, and here is the optimal number that, I, that we believe. Just because it's the average doesn't mean it's great. It means it's average. Um, some of the averages are actually really good, and some of them we think that can be improved. So what we've done is kind of put up a, what I've done is put up an in, the industry average and then the optimal. Um, gross margin is one of the most important numbers, if not the most important number on the distributor side. It's really important on the supplier side too. Um, but I'm going to go through some information that will show you just how important it is on the, on the distributor side. And then you want to be able to measure it. Many people say, well, our, and we have a questionnaire that people fill out when they're doing evaluation. They say, oh, yeah, we sell at 35% or above. And then we get their financial statements. And they say that they sell at 29%. And sometimes it makes me wonder, what are those differences? So you want to be able to measure it so that you're constantly monitoring gross margin. Um, you may think that you're selling at a certain level, but um, when you go back and look at your financial statements, you want to make sure that's reflective of what your policies are in terms of gross margin. So why are they so important? So here's a, a basic, easy example. Um, you have sales of a million dollars, cost of goods sold 650, gross profits 350. Easy. If you're on a 50-50 split, then you're giving half of it away. But on average in this industry, 17.5% of your sales dollars go to G&A. That's just an average. I'm not saying that's the same for everybody. Um, everybody's rent is different depending on where you are. But that's the average of what we see. So if you sell at less than 35%, you end up in a situation like this. And this is somebody selling $2 million. If, this is, if sales is your measurement of success, you think they would be doing better. In actuality, um, they are not. Because that 17.5% does not shift. It's a, still a variable number. And therefore, they come down to a net loss, which makes us sad. So <laughs> the, next, the next slide, I'm going to preface it, because when I push the button, it's going to start. It's a clip. And I know this information is kind of dry. And I don't want anybody to fall asleep. So it's a clip. And it's one of my favorite clips. And it's from The Office, which is a show that I love. And I'm such a nerd that when I saw this clip, I knew someday I was going to use it in a presentation. And it's really grainy, so don't judge. Um, I, I'm not techie. I'm a numbers person. <laughs> so I'm not techie, but you can hear it really well, so hopefully. And um, I think it really helps kind of explain why margins are so important. How much can we afford to pay a delivery guy? Well, if these numbers you gave me are correct. They are correct, sir. Then you can't afford to pay him anything. OK. A lame attempt at humor, swing and a miss. Your prices are too low. Lowest in town. Why do you think Staples and Dunder Mifflin can't match your prices? Corporate greed. Look, our pricing model is fine. I review the numbers myself. Over time, with enough volume, we become profitable. Yeah, with a fixed cost pricing model, that's correct. But, yeah. But you need to use a variable cost pricing model. OK, sure. Right. So why don't you explain what that is to the, so they can understand? Yeah, Just explain you, what that is. Explain what you think that is. Okay. Just explain it. As you sell more paper and your company grows, so will your costs. For example, delivery man, 
healthcare, business expansion. Whatever, yeah. So uh, at these prices, the more paper you sell, the less money you'll make. Our prices are the only thing keeping us in business. They're actually putting you out of business. Okay, okay. Hold on, hold on. Ty, I would like you to crunch those numbers again. It's a program. There's no such thing. Just as... crunch them. Just crunch them, please. Crunch. Did it help? I just wanted to share it because I thought it was so funny and relevant, um, and I'm a huge Office fan. So, but it's it show you a lot of people think they can kind of outsell the model and sell a lot. And like Catherine was saying, it's not necessarily good for your business because those are not orders that are going to drive value in your company. It's a really, really hard foundation to build upon. So, um, and this is the leading and lagging, like she was saying, I didn't say it the same way, but um, you want to monitor your sales and gross margin regularly. Regularly, I say at least on a monthly basis, she says on a weekly basis. She owns a distributorship, so I would go with that weekly. Um, but, and it depends on kind of the numbers too. I mean, I think you should probably track the, the leading on a weekly basis and maybe you can track the lagging on a monthly basis. Um, so total orders this month and year to date, um, with expected gross profits and uh, total billings this month and year-to-date with actual gross profits and then total unbilled orders at the end of each month which we refer to as the backlog. So you, it's important to track these numbers to make sure that you're developing those. These are the, these are the good habits that are going to create more value in your company. So proper sales compensation should you have employees or independent contractors. I'm just going to kind of talk about the theoretical difference between the two. I'm not going to tell you which one you should have although I already kind of said employees are the model that it's most easy for buyers to get their arms around when they're buying because they create the best continuity. Um, but independent contractors, I'm, or I, I don't know what they're called in Canada, but they're 1099 here. Um, and they, there's less payroll tax associated with that and, um, and there's no benefits associated with it. So that's why you can afford to pay them 50-50. If you have employees, you can't pay them 50-50. Um, you just can't because you have to pay all of the additional payroll taxes and benefits and everything else. So it's, it's not the right model. I, I'm not, a lot of people use a 40% split. A lot of people use, um, we'll, we'll match whatever you're selling at. If you're selling at 35%, you get 35%. If you're selling at 40%, you get 40%. There's, then there's the sales commission plus base. There's a lot of different options. All I'm saying is independent contractors, sure, 50-50 works. Any, anybody that's an employee, 50-50 does absolutely not work. Um, so, and then the other, the other difference between the two is um, when you have the employees, you have a lot more control. And one good strategy is, and I tell people, um, you don't want your salesperson to be the absolute only person that your customer's ever met. It, it's great, and um, you've got your, like Catherine said, your hunters out there. And then it's great to have good internal people to handle the details of the order to make sure that the details go smoothly. And the other thing that that does is it creates another point of contact in your company. So if that salesperson ever does leave, now you have another point of contact that they have a good relationship with and you want that person to be really accessible because salespeople aren't always really accessible. They're out selling, they're busy, and then the, if the internal person's key sole role is to 
have that contact with the with the customer, then they're going to be able to talk to them a lot more. And um, I think it was uh, Matt, Matt in his presentation said that that was one of the things his customers liked most about most about him. So um, I think that's true. So I, I kind of talked about these already, and and this kind of breaks down. I, and unfortunately, yeah, this is this is the United States information. I don't know what the, the Canadian information is. I probably should have asked. Um, but the additional cost for payroll, it kind of breaks down what some of those are. And then this key point over here, the house should always keep the first 17.5%. That's because it pretty much costs you 17.5% to even have the company. So that means that if, you're, if they sell less than 34% and it's an independent contractor, then they don't get the 50%. Does that make sense? They get, what I say, 34% minus 17.5. So they, if you keep the first 17.5%, it's a key to keeping your margins as a company where they need to be. And then consider a sliding scale based on gross profit. Yes, sir? So the 17, oh, I'm sorry, the 17.5% is just the it's going to be your rent and your utilities and everything that it takes to run your company. And that's just the average 17.5% of every sales dollar is what it takes to run your company. It's just fixed cost, correct? Well, it, it turns into a variable cost. But yes, it's, it's, it's a variable cost. But it's, yeah, it's your overhead. You can call it your overhead. If you're already spending that up front, whether or not you have this sale, and you accept anything less than 35%, and you give them half, you're already out. Yes, sir? Would the owner's salary be considered 17.5? That depends on whether they sell. Okay. So an owner's salary, if you sell, then you have some commission in there. So we tell people to always keep a kind of a running total if you're an owner. What would your compensation be if you were compensating yourself like all of your other salespeople? So, it depends on how, now if you are managing the company and you're not selling, absolutely it's included in the 17 and a half. The 17 and a half? It, it, depends on, it depends on how you run your company and whether you have rent. Some people don't have rent. Some people work out of their homes. Some people live in New York City. So, you know, and they have big offices. It, it just depends on um, kind of what your, what your structure is. So his question is, when you're looking at gross margin, kind of what's included in that? Um, and what's included in the cost of goods sold? And I think it's anything that it takes to get that order to the customer. So yeah, it includes freight. Um, some people put their freight revenue and cost in the same line and kind of net it together. Um, some people put freight up in revenue and then put the rest of the freight down in cost of goods sold when there's, you know, so everybody does that differently. But yeah, anything it takes to get that order to the customer, we, we consider to be um, a cost of goods sold. Do you put sales support or like a production coordinator type? Sales support? Or like a production coordinator so they call the vendors? I would not, and, and this is just based on the analysis that we do in this, in this industry, I would not put sales support in cost of goods sold, but I would put a production coordinator in cost of goods sold. I'd put any. Any warehousing or inventory or order, you know, anything that has to do with that, I mean, you consider, are we going, what if we didn't do this? What if we got it all from somebody else? What would the invoice from this supplier or what, you know, what would it have in it? And it would have all, it would be all wrapped up in there. 
if you were getting it from somebody else and you weren't doing that production in-house, what would that look like? So anything like that, I put up in cost of goods sold. And that includes an allocation of rent for a warehouse space and utilities for warehouse space. Because if you don't have that information in there, and this is, this is included a little bit later, um, you have a false sense of what your margins are. It's a nice segue into controlling your overhead. Um, these are just a few ideas that we talk about with people. I know remote offices is really a big thing right now. Um, there's a lot of auto assistance. I know there's a program called Grasshopper. Does anybody use Grasshopper? No, it's, it's a great um, one. It's a great program. It's like an auto assistant if you're a small business and you want to create the feel that you're a larger business, then it's a great program to use. Minimizing travel costs, streamlining, streamlining order processing, um, and then I like the open communication because especially when you're getting to be a growing company and you do things a certain way, and you always do them that way, and there's other ways that can be done. I like the employee input, asking your employees, you, what cost saving methods do you see? Where are we wasting money here? Where, where can we maybe trim back? And I like to get that employee input. And then we do a lot of normalization of financial statements, which means that we back out a lot of um, information, a lot of expenses, that it's a personal, a personal car, personal travel, all that. No problem. Put all that personal stuff through there. That's not a problem. Um, but keep track of what it is. Because if you ever want to sell your company and we go to do a valuation, we want to take all that out because all that is discretionary. It doesn't, it's not pertinent to running your business. So um, just keep a good log of it so that you know what it is. Um, so let's get to the bottom line. EBITDA is the bottom line. Um, probably everybody in here has heard the term EBITDA at one point. I'm sure some of you know what it means and some of you don't. So I'm going to cover it. Um, earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. So what does that mean? So it's just your net income, and then you back out some of the stuff. And why do we back it out? Um, we exclude taxes because they're not a measure of the business performance, and you have no control over them. Um, and they vary from company to company, and they vary from entity type to entity type. Um, we exclude interest because it's a function of debt, and it can be temporary, and then will again vary from business to business. Some people have enough capital, they don't need debt. Um, it's important for you to understand how interest affects your business, but it's not important in terms of a buying situation. So we always back out interest. Um, and depreciation and amortization are easy. They're non-cash expenses. They are, that's, there's not a cash outflow in the year that it's taken, so we back depreciation out. Does anybody have any questions about EBITDA? It's a term we throw around a lot. What was that? We're good? So here's another key performance indicator, the EBITDA margin. Um, industry averages 9%, which is actually really good. Um, optimals 10%. And the, the thing here, um, it's very large companies should be able to hit the 10% because they have those economies of, of scale. Um, really small companies that work out of their homes should be able to hit the 10% because they're working out of their homes. It's the medium-sized companies that are working really hard to hit that 10%. Um, so they're the ones that have to track and make sure that they're doing the cost-cutting and make sure that they're running efficiently and all that. The medium-sized companies get squeezed more than anybody else. Um, so I thought this was a racy slide when I put it up here. And people have been saying all kinds of bad words today. So. <laughs> 
so I feel like it's okay. Because <laughs> I'm from the Midwest. <laughs> the BS is the balance sheet. What about the balance sheet? Um, a lot of people do all their analysis on the income statement and they forget about the balance sheet. And what's important about the balance sheet is that it, it generates cash flow. I know it doesn't seem like, it seems like the, the profit and loss generates cash flow, but a sale does not create cash flow. Collection of receivables creates cash flow. So just because you sold something doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get paid on it. And it, you have to track the balance sheet ratios as well. So we're going to talk about those. So here's just a few things. There's accounts receivable cycles, inventory purchasing, capital expenditures. So you can see how these are all um, items that on your income statement you have sales, gross margin, all those expenses where you pay everybody else except for yourself. And these aren't on there, but they're just as important because they, they, help, they help you manage your cash flow. Borrowings and payments on debt and then distributions to owners, customer deposits, all of those affect your cash flow. And cash flow is very, very important. Um, so first thing we're going to talk about is accounts receivable. I know this is a ratio and it's kind of numbery, but uh, the day's sales outstanding formula basically says, how fast am I collecting my receivables? How long does it take me to collect my receivables? So for this industry, on average, based on the information we have, industry averages 37%, which is really strong. Optimal, I think, is 30 doesn't mean if you don't hit 30, you're bad. The industry average is 37%, and I, I honestly think that's really, really, really good. Um, but you want to set goals, and if you're not to 30, I, th I think that's a good goal. Um, one of the best tools to help ensure good collection is a credit policy. How many people have a credit policy? How many people think that their customers know what their credit policy is? Your customers should know your credit policy. Absolutely, they should know it. It's not enough to write a credit policy and put it in a drawer. The credit policy has to be communicated with your customers. So what goes into it? Um, a strong credit policy says um, who receives credit, under what circumstances. Um, is it a new customer? Have you done, do you have a policy of doing a, you know, some sort of check on them, credit check? Um, how much credit will you Will you extend to them, and what are your limits? Catherine said that their limit's 10,000. Anything over 10,000 they need to deposit, um, that's something that would be included in your credit policy. Um, what are the payments that you're willing to accept on the credit? Uh, do you offer discounts for early payments? How will the company handle any delinquent accounts? Are, how are you going to collect those accounts? Um, or at some point, are you going to turn them over to collection agency? You know, all of that should be determined ahead of time. Um, and then how will the credit terms be communicated to the, communicated to the customer? Unfortunately, if your salesperson is the only person talking to your customer, your salesperson has to communicate it. So that's another reason why it's nice to have an internal person to kind of communicate some of these details to the customer. And it should absolutely be on the invoice or the contract that they sign when they order. Any questions on the credit policy? It's a really good tool to help you manage cash flow. So inventory. Um, it's funny, um, Matt, I think it was, used the exact same terminology that um, inventory, I think he was talking about programs, but inventory slash programs are a necessary evil. He said the exact same thing. Um, in order to keep 
um, clients sometimes. But it can tie up cash flow that could be used for other purposes and create additional expense. And there are a lot of indirect or hidden costs in owning inventory. We were talking earlier about like the production, but also purchasing um, salaries. Those all need to be included in cost of goods sold, so that you understand what some of the mar what the margins are associated with that that business. Because the margins are, it's a way to calculate it. It's different than with your other business where you're not warehousing product. Because when you warehouse that product, you tie up a lot of cash and you have a lot of other expenses. Day sales and inventory. I put this in here because I think it's important if you are doing a lot with inventory. Um, I don't know that everybody in here is, um, but basically it's a way to see how much you have in inventory. Hopefully it's not too relevant because usually on the distributor side, um, hopefully you're owning inventory for somebody very specific and you know that that's, that inventory is associated with that customer. Um, but you want to make sure you move your inventory as fast as possible and um, the longer it sits on the shelf then the longer the company cannot use that cash for other orders. Um, for the industry, 22.5, I mean it's not 22, I don't know that that's a super meaningful number, I'm just giving you that the, it's, it's in the database so I wanted to share it but optimal zero, and how is that possible? But um, the optimal situation is that the customer owns any inventory that you have. So if you're gonna, if you're gonna handle inventory, you wanna make sure you're pretty strict about it, and there's some tips here. Um, Customer-owned inventory is the best scenario. Um, buyback clauses are second best. If you don't have either one of those, then don't own the inventory unless you're willing to accept a loss on it. That's, it's kinda like, lending money to a family member. I mean, you just don't do it unless you're willing to accept a loss. Fulfillment should have a separate charge. Um, margins or margins should be much higher. Um, if you're running space and creating overhead, it will impact profitability. I, I kind of already touched on that. Um, and definitely consider a different commission structure for your salespeople or for fulfillment program business. How many people do this? Your program business, they have a different commission structure. Okay, good. Yeah, that's very important. Um, and then, I, as I said before, if you are, uh, if you have a warehouse, be sure to include some of that cost in your cost of goods sold. Some people do it on a square footage basis. There's a lot of different ways to do it. But you, when you set your gross margin goal, you want to really be able to monitor whether you're hitting it or not, and that needs to be in there. Debt to equity. Debt is kind of funny in this, in this industry. A lot of people have none. Some people have a lot. I mean, it's not, it's not always necessary to run a successful distributorship. You don't necessarily need debt. The debt to equity ratio, it's basically, to explain it kind of basic, it's basically, if your debt to equity ratio of, was one, that means that your investors and creditors have an equal stake in your business assets. Does that make sense? Because it's equity is what you have in the business and debt is basically what other people are entitled to if you were maybe to file bankruptcy or something. A lower debt to equity ratio and always implies a more financially stable business and, um, and then the customers with a higher debt to equity ratio are considered more risky. This I think is important because I think this happens a lot where short-term debt should finance short-term assets. So what are short-term assets? Let me name a short-term asset. Accounts receivable. It's pretty much the only one. <laughs> I mean, you have some inventory, so you can finance an inventory, but don't finance that inventory and then don't sell it, and then you still have the note. That's that's a bad situation. Then your your inventory should never be 
a long-term asset in that situation. So finance short-term assets with short-term debt. Long-term debt is acceptable for long-term assets. So what's a long-term asset? Not inventory. A building. Uh, equipment acquisition, correct, all of those. Those are okay if you want to use long-term debt, but you still want to have a, a payment plan to pay the debt off. Um, so if you have cycles where your working capital falls short because you're doing large orders or something like that, um, then a line of credit is a way to bridge that gap, but it shouldn't be permanent. It shouldn't be a landfill where you've filled in um, a shortcoming of cash flow with your line of credit. This is kind of you get down to your net income, net loss. I think everybody under, kind of understands an income statement, net income loss. And then here's where you kind of talk with your, you kind of look through your cash flow. Um, what happened in AR? Change in AR. So positive $90,000, which means you collected $90,000, or the net of your collections and your billings equaled $90,000. Change in AP, you paid some bills. Um, you didn't spend anything on capital expenditures. And so you come down to your, your net cash flow, and then you have um, your bank funds if you borrowed to fill in some gaps or whatever. So you have your beginning cash balance and your ending cash balance. I think that this is very important. I, I think it's hard to just stop at the net income and net loss, especially if you're doing a lot of big orders. And this is kind of what Catherine was talking about earlier about managing cash flow. This is one of the tools that you can use to do that. So I, and all of these are going to be available, so don't feel like you have to jot all this down. Um, but I think this is a key tool in order to manage cash flow. Kind of getting to the more meat of it, what are buyers looking for? Um, positive growth trends, strong gross margin, uh, strong EBITDA percentage. They want salespeople under contracts. Um, and this is just kind of a recap of what we've talked about. Reasonable salesperson compensation. If you are overcompensating your salespeople and you want to sell your company, nobody is going to buy it because they're going to want to change the commission structure as soon as they do and then all the salespeople are going to want to leave or they're going to be mad. So you don't want to overcompensate your salespeople for that reason. Even if you're the most giving person in the whole world, don't do it. Um, and then consistency and stability in the numbers and then most likely they're going to want to relocate. Not always, but most of the deals we do, there's some element of relocation. It may not be right away, but eventually they do relocate. Um, so how do you make your company more valuable? Um, to, to simplify it, multiples of value are taking, are, they're taken off one of two numbers, gross margin or EBITDA. Therefore, to make your company more valuable, you need to increase these two numbers. Um, also keep in mind that there are some aspects of your business that are going to, um, you know, like long-term leases, huge customer concentrations. Um, those types of things can affect how marketable your company is. Um, and then the two kind of the keys to selling a company are flexibility and availability. If you're thinking you might want to sell your company, it doesn't mean you have to sell it right now, but it, it, if it's not available, then nobody's going to buy it. Um, and then flexibility. I, I have people all the time that say, well, I don't want them to, I don't want to take any of my employees away. I, I want to keep it exactly where it is and I want to run it exactly the same way I do. And no buyer's going to want to do that. They're going to make some changes. So flexibility is key. I always get one question, um, so I'm waiting for somebody to ask it. You. What's the multiple? What's the multiple? Yes. So on the distributor side, um, we see, and it depends on the structure and the value, in the situation, but 80 to 100% of gross margin for distributors. Now. If 
they are going to relocate the company or if they're going to build in their own operational structure, they use that number. However, if it's a big company and they're going to run it kind of where it is and maybe they're going to make some tweaks, they also look at your EBITDA number. And that number can range from, it can range from three to six. Three is pretty distressed, but a healthy company, I mean, and that's a big, I mean, I realize that that's a big range. But so what we do when we value a company um, is we kind of take the two methods and we see where they intersect and that kind of creates a good basis for value. What's the difference if they're absorbing it versus? I use, I use a hybrid. I always kind of look at both of them. So I don't use one or the other usually. Sometimes a company's not making any money at all. That doesn't mean they're worth nothing. So sometimes the gross margin method comes into play in that scenario. But we still have to be able to justify that value with some assumptions that we'll make about a future purchase. Does that make sense? What is the market like now? For selling industry. It's active, um, and I think Bobby and I had this conversation. We don't say it's a seller or buyer's market. It is usually neither, because you're, this isn't real estate. These are businesses, and no matter what is the economic climate out there, the decision to buy a company has to be right, and there's a lot of analysis that goes into it. It has to be right for both sides. So that's why it's neither a, a seller or a buyer's market, even it doesn't really follow your general economics for that reason. It has to make financial sense for both sides, and most buyers are savvy enough to see if something isn't going to make sense for them. Even if there's nothing else out there to buy, they don't buy it. They don't have to because it's not like a house. They don't need it. They, are, you know, they don't need it as a place to live. Um, so strategic acquisitions um, aren't something that you have to do. It's something that people do when it makes sense. How do I find a company I want to acquire? Um, we, you want to... If you probably want to buy in your area, you know, you kind of start there. If you want to kind of branch out and, and look in other areas, then and you just have to do a little bit of research. We do strategic acquisitions. <laughs> so if you want to buy a company, we can help you find a company to buy, and we can kind of walk you through the process we do that. Um, I know that people just, a lot of people want to buy their competitors, so they start there. Um, it can be tough. It depends on what kind of relationship you have with your competitors. Um, you might start with somebody, you might kind of target an age range where you're thinking somebody might want to retire soon and they don't have another exit strategy. Um, there's a lot of different ways to go about it. So, Yes, have I seen any trends in earnout? I had a uh, boss one time that told me that structure is everything because he said, I'll give you a million dollars, but it's going to be a dollar a day for the next million days. And that's not what people want. Yes, earnout is a huge trend in this industry. Um, it's important, and um, we see very few distributor side transactions that are solely based on cash at closing. It's usually um, a mix of cash at closing and some earnout, generally over two to four years. Um, sometimes some people say three to five. I think two to four is better, um, and it kind of depends on the size of the company. And if you're buying a really small company and you string out the purchase over three to five years, it can get kind of lengthy. Um, so the next question is going to be, what's the percentage breakdown usually? Um, Twenty to forty percent of cash at closing is what we usually see, um, and then the rest we see as earnout. 50% uh, can happen. I'm not saying it can't. It's just not as common because this is a relationship industry and those transition structures, um, the transition needs to be in place. 
Um, and and I, I, I don't mind giving these numbers out, but I definitely, every, I want everybody to understand that every business is different, every transaction is different. These are our, our averages based on our experience. Yes, ma'am. And that's based off of any type of distributorship or if a, so there's different technologies that some distributors may have through their website. It's a little bit different. So um, are you gearing this more towards, you know, a basic distribution versus uh, yeah, that's a basic distributorship. And um, she's, she's asking, does it matter if her distributorship is a little bit different? Are you talking about a direct marketing distributorship? No, like if there's a significant amount that's web-based, a web-based business. Which is direct. That's a direct marketing company. I mean, I mean, it's a type of direct marketing company. And yes, if you're doing a lot of your business online and you've got the SEO and everything else where it needs to be, then, then yes, you'll see a different structure and you'll also maybe see different multiples because in that circumstance, they can be a little higher. You're not paying commission on those usually. But then you do have SEO expenses, so it just kind of depends on what that ratio ends up being. Yes, sir. On average. When we take on a distributor, how long does it take to sell them on average? Um, we've done transactions in as little as 30 days and we've taken two years. The average, I would say, from start to finish, which includes evaluation and a preparation of marketing materials, taking it to market, negotiating a purchase price, and setting a close date is about six months. How, is, how, do, you, how do you guys make money? How do we, we make money as a percentage of the transaction. So um, it's, a, it's, a per, it's a formula based on the transaction fee, um, based on the value that you get for your company. Uh, do you see a trend toward distributorship being sold to suppliers? No. The, the, <laughs> the question was, do I see a trend of distributorships being sold to suppliers? I can honestly say I've never been involved in one of those. Um, that's not saying that it does not happen, but they're, they're not going through us and they're probably not going to tell everybody about it. So I have not seen that. I, I, I'm sure it does happen. We do have a couple of people that we work with that ha already have a distributorship and a supplier, so they could buy either one at any given time. I mean, that is true, but um, no, not, not as much. Yes, sir. What's the threshold of sales for larger companies? In oh, I would say, I mean, this industry is really, really diverse, and I forget the statistic, but it's something like 98% of distributors are doing less than a million dollars in sales or something like that. Yeah, it's very, yeah, it's crazy. I mean, I guess I would say the critical mass there would be about five million would be larger. You know, it could be four, and four and five million, and that's, that's a good sweet spot for a lot of buyers as well, because it's not so big that you can't take it on. Are there any other questions? I think we're, I think we're wrapping up. Yeah, all, all right. right. Thank you very much, Jamie. Thank you. Very Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of SKUcast. Be sure to keep up with our latest content by subscribing to SKUcast on iTunes or to our blog at community.commonskew.com. Until next time, friends, thanks so much for listening.